and invite you this morning to look at look at with me in the in the book of First John. We're going to look at First John chapter three. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn there. I'm going to read the first three verses in a in a few moments here. Um, before I do that, before I read, I want to give you a little bit of an update. So many of you know that I had my follow up scans this past Thursday, and those were scans were connected to my uh, previous test three weeks before. And there were a couple areas that the doctors were concerned about, or they, out of the abundance of caution, wanted to investigate more. And so I had those scans Thursday and everything was clear. And so very, very thankful. Yeah. Um, it, was, uh, it was a big relief, as you can imagine. Uh, on the way home, Jenny said that when the doctor said it was all clear, she said, I just felt like water. I was like, yeah, I know what you mean. Um, you feel all this weight lifted. And so thank you for your prayers and your concern. Uh, Looks like you're going to be stuck with me being healthy for at least another 90 days. And so um, next time I go will be in February. So um, very, not looking forward to that, but glad I get a little bit of a break for the holiday. So nice. Uh, next. Let's not forget that this year we're looking at uh, the whole Bible together, and we've got three numbers that are associated with our study, so I just wanted to recap these because I haven't done it in a few weeks. So if you remember the number three, four, and five, you'll remember the framework for us to look at the, or look at the Bible together. Do you remember our three loves? Can you tell me what they are? Love God, love people. Love the city, love place where we are. Four is reminding us that the Bible is a four-part story. So we have creation, rebellion, redemption, and what's the last one? Restoration. Restoration. You know, that four-part story is really significant because at the end of the day, the Bible is not ultimately giving you advice. The Bible is ultimately announcing good news. And there is a story that tells us that good news. And that story has those four parts in it. So it's really going to, you're going to have a hard time understanding the Bible unless you see it as a story. But most of us have probably grown up thinking that the Bible is more like advice. Study this, get principles, know how to live. Bible's not, that's not the fundamental purpose of the Bible. Five are five little statements that we use as kind of uh, putting meat on the bones of the skeleton of that four-part story. So here are five statements, and I hope by the end of the year you'll, you'll have a handle on these and you'll, you'll live into them because they're a way to express truth, hopefully in a very condensed way. So number one, God has always had a people. He's always been building his church. Always, always, always. Genesis to Revelation. Two, evil is real but it never gets the last word. Three, grace. God initiates, pursues, and saves. Four, he did it. Jesus actually accomplished something through his life and death and resurrection. He didn't so much die to make you savable or to make it possible. He literally is a savior. He saves people. And five, everything is moving toward Jesus. Everything in your life, my life, current events, history, whatever's in the future, everything is moving toward Jesus. Everything, everything, everything. So if you get three, four, and five and can remember those, you know the Bible. You got it. That's it. So this morning we're going to look at 1 John as we continue to think about this four-part story together. Listen to this, 1 John 3, verses 1 through 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. 
The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Pretty encouraging words, huh? You heard those before in some way, shape, or form? I bet you have. Well, let's pray and ask God to help us dig into this this morning. Lord, we do thank you for your word. Um, Oftentimes we neglect it. We certainly um, misinterpret it sometimes. Uh, But Holy Spirit, we thank you that you are working in us so that we would understand truth and that we would hear these words and that by hearing them, you would work and make sense of it in our life, that you would take these words and expose our thoughts, uh, our motives, uh, who we are, what we want, what we're upset about. You would take these words and you would expose all that we are so that you would bring us to Jesus. And we thank you that these words are written to tell us about what you have done, Jesus. So as we sit here this morning and think together about these words, um, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would make Jesus irresistible to us in brand new ways, that we would see Jesus in truth as more believable and more hopeful and filling us with more joy than we could ever imagine. Uh, make, Make good news actual good news for us today. That this week, no matter what we do, we would live in light of what we are learning together, truth. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So this morning, what I want to show you from the passage is this. The four-part story enables us to live with confident joy. The four-part story enables us to live with a confident joy. Joy. That's what I want to show you from these verses. So if you're here and you don't want to be joyful today, now's your time to get out. And if you're looking for joy, then there's only one place you're going to find it. And we're going to talk about it today. A confident joy. Not a joy that comes and goes, but real, deep down, confident joy. And we got three, we got three stops on our journey. The first is now. The second is not yet. And the third is in between, in between the now and the not yet. So now, not yet, and in between. So let's start with the now. Look at verse one. Do you realize what John is telling us? Now let me tell you this. John is old when he writes this. He's probably in his 90s and he's seen it all. And he is writing to these churches that are enduring persecution and know that it's coming. And this is what he tells you. This is what he tells us. You are an adopted child of God. Do you see it in verse one? He says, you are called children of God. He reminds us that we are God's children and he wants to make it so clear to us that we can't miss it that he doubles up because he doesn't want us to to think that we are children of God in name or title only. Do you see it? Beloved, we're called children of God and so we are. He doesn't want to think that this title doesn't have any connection with our lives. He wants us to feel that we are children of God right now. Now, this is where, when you look at verse 1, and when you read the translation we read, it's just a little bit soft. So if you bear with me, I want to make this text more literal for you and me, all right? 
So when John says that we are adopted children of God, we are adopted children of God right now because of God's love. And when John says, see what kind of love, did you notice that phrase in verse one? See what kind of love? It actually is telling us originally that this phrase was describing something from another country. John is saying you are a child of God because of God's love. And that love of God comes from another world. It's a love that you can't find in the natural world. It's a world that comes from God, it's a love that comes from God himself who owns the entire universe. This is the kind of love that makes you a child of God. The love of God. The love that is unconditional. The love that in which God took the costs of all that we have accrued and made the payment through what Jesus has done. And because of that love, he has adopted you and brings you into his family as a son, as a daughter. So that right now today, no matter what's going on in your life, we start right here, right now, with the reality that you are a child of God through what Jesus has done. See what kind of love? And not only that, notice what he says after that. It is, we are a child of God because of his love that he bestows on us or gives us. It's another word that is jam-packed with all kinds of significance. When this says, see what kind of love the Father has given or more literally bestowed on us, John is saying that there was a moment in which this otherworldly love was bestowed. And it was one of those moments in which you were changed forever. We think of those kind of moments in times like graduation or like a wedding ceremony, you know? Those are moments in which we are bestowing something. Something is happening in which we will never be the same. When you graduate and got your diploma, that was a moment in which it alters and changes you. It may feel like a piece of paper of some kind. Maybe, maybe it doesn't feel like it's that significant, but it is. Because of that moment, that moment was the moment in which something was bestowed upon you. When you were, the day that you were married, if you're married, that day has changed you forever. It was the day in which you pledged your love to someone and they to you, and therefore for the rest of your existence together, it was different. Your life was different. And John is saying you are a child of God because of an otherworldly love that was given or bestowed at the cross and what Jesus has done. And because of Christ and entrusting yourself to him and recognizing that, oh, he was on the cross for me and that God's love was displayed through sending Jesus, that by receiving him, the result of that is I'm now a child of God that's what John is saying to you. That's what he's saying to me. That right now, you are God's children. Do you know how special this is? You know, in the Bible, there's this idea that because of what Jesus has done and, and you're believing in Jesus, um, that God says that you are forgiven, that you're not guilty, and that you are righteous, you know? That's a, there's a big word for that. It's called justified, all right? 
And when God justifies us, he's telling us about our relationship to his law. That because of Jesus, we are no longer guilty of breaking that law and incurring the consequences of breaking that law. When God says you're not guilty and you're forgiven, you're righteous, he's telling us about our relationship to the law. But when God tells you that you were his child, God is telling you what your relationship is to his heart. He doesn't just say in relationship to the law, you're not guilty and you're forgiven, you're righteous, paid in full. He says, you're my child. And the relationship with me is the relationship with my heart. I love you as I love my son. I love you as I love my daughter. Now, John, having said this in verse one, seems to anticipate a question because if you didn't catch it, this is supposed to overwhelm you this morning that you are a child of God because of what Jesus has done and that your relationship to God is not just based on the law, which you're clear, it's in your relationship to his heart. He loves you like a child. And you might think, John, and you might think the way that people originally heard it and, and, and thought about this question, which John anticipated. Well, John, if that's true, why does the world reject us? Why doesn't the world care about us? Why are we being persecuted? If we're God's children, why do people still reject us? And look at what John says at the end of verse one. Hey, they reject you because they rejected Christ. See, he's anticipating what's going on in their minds. If we have this new status, and if we have this relationship with God, why don't people care about us then? Why are they wanting to persecute us? Oh, don't make this all about yourself, John says. They rejected Jesus. They rejected you because they reject him. This is about him. This is not about you. That's what's going on now. But do you see how John expresses all of this about what's going on now? Um, again, this translation is a little bit soft. He starts out by, by saying, see, right? See what kind of love the Father has given to us. Do you see it in verse one? See is John's favorite imperative. He loves saying, see, look at this. Really, this is more gripping to say, behold, behold. John is not expressing this truth that we are children of God because of what Jesus has done in some cold, clinical manner. He is beholding this truth. He's not just saying, oh, fact, you are a child of God. He's saying, beloved, behold, look at this. John is emoting He's trying to get you to understand that the love that God has poured out on you is otherworldly. And what Christ has done is amazing. And what it does in your life revolutionizes you. And John's saying, behold, look at this. He must assume that we are busy beholding other things rather than the gospel. He must assume that the pressures of the circumstances of life sometimes distract us from beholding what is really true. He must think that living in circumstances that are difficult at times, um, it's a challenge to face those circumstances in light of beholding who God is and what he's done for us. Sound familiar to our lives? 
John must have anticipated all this. And he is here emoting. He is here uh, out of the overflow of his heart trying to convince us about the love of God and what Christ has done. Behold, would you look at this? You see, there is a huge difference between knowing and beholding. You know that? Huge difference. There's a difference between you knowing something and beholding it with your entire being and reveling in it. A guy that lived a while ago said this. There's a difference between the truth and the power of the truth. You take that in? There's a difference between truth and the power of the truth. Someone else said it this way. There's a difference between having a rational sense that honey is sweet and having a taste of its sweetness. John is having a taste of it. He's trying to get us to taste the love of God. He's trying to get us to understand that the love of God is not just something that you know, it's something that we get to behold. You see, when the truth of God is out there and then becomes inside here, things change and things happen. When truth moves from knowing to beholding, our lives are radically changed and we actually grow in our faith. When we understand the difference between truth and the power of the truth, when we understand the difference between honey is sweet and tasting honey, a change has happened in our lives. And John is trying to get us to experience that too. You see, <clears throat> the difference between knowing and beholding is not just recognizing that there's a difference between honey is sweet and tasting it. It's when the truth moves from something that just exists between our ears to where it starts to burn within us. Do you remember that time where Jesus was on the road with these two guys after the resurrection? And he started talking with them and then he leaves and you know what they said? Did not the truth burn within us? That wasn't indigestion. What was happening is that they were beholding what just occurred. And they weren't thinking of it in a clinical, cold manner. They were experiencing the reality of it. You see, when truth, when we begin to behold the truth, what happens is that truth aggressively is contagious. And when truth is contagious, it means that it gets down into us and it starts affecting the way that we look at everything. It starts affecting the way that we make decisions. It starts affecting the way that we interpret circumstances and interpret our reality. When we start beholding the truth, we're no longer trying to evaluate something. We're at a point where something has a hold of us. We're at a point in which the truth has gotten a grip on us. And we begin to make connections, remember? It's contagious. It's spreading. Oh, well, if the love of God is real, then that must mean whatever circumstance I'm in, I am a child of God right now. Oh, if Jesus is really alive from the dead, then that means my future is going to be different. Oh, 
If God is in control in pursuing me by grace and initiating and pursuing and changing, oh, then whatever decisions that I make and whatever responsibilities that I try to execute with faithfulness and truth and integrity and honesty, oh, there's something bigger going on. Truth is contagious. And it starts affecting the way we do everything and interpret everything. That's what John is talking about. The reality that we are a child of God should reorient everything about us. That's why the biggest threat to us beholding the truth is our own hearts. That's why we struggle to read things like this and really engage with it. Because our hearts are a problem. You know, the biggest threat to beholding truth is that legalist in our own heart. The biggest threat to beholding truth is that moralistic part of our hearts. You see, the moralist wants to hear something and create a list. Because the moralist wants to create a list whereby the list can be followed and I can put God in my debt. So I wanna follow what is true I want to do what is right because I want God to be indebted to me. And so I want to obey at least some things, not everything, but I certainly want to try to be better than this guy over here. So I want to obey some things and do some good things because deep down I want to put God in my debt. And I know that many of you hear that and think that is the wrong way to live. Guess what? I know it too. But my heart is still not perfected. There's still a moralistic part of me, a legalistic part of me that wants to hear things and make a list and put God in my debt. And you know how that is revealed in my life and perhaps how it can be revealed in your life too? Whenever things don't go the way you want it to. Because when something doesn't go the way that I want it to, you know what I end up thinking instinctively. Why is God doing this to me? You see, what I've done is I've created the list and I've obeyed to put God in my debt. And when something doesn't go the way I want, it means all that obedience was just trying to get God in my debt. And when he doesn't do what I want, my heart is revealed that I really don't love God for God. I love God for what I can get out of him. Examine your own hearts. Think about your own lives. Think about how you obey and why you obey and how you respond when things don't go the way you want. See if you get angry at God. See if you get frustrated. See if you think he's not good. You see, our hearts are revealed. Our hearts are revealed. We want to obligate God to do something for us. So when you compare these two, what does it actually mean to follow God? What does it actually mean to be a follower of Jesus? And how is that different from this legalistic stuff, this moralistic thing? Well, you see, on one hand, the moralist wants the list. The moralist wants to, learn, wants to earn. The moralist wants to merit. The moralist wants to hear the message of the Bible and the message of Jesus as a self-help technique. The moralist wants to live life with God without God needing to change my heart. The genuine follower of Jesus sees that everything is gift. 
The genuine follower of Jesus is willing to admit, oh, I am so rebellious. The genuine follower is willing to grow in understanding the depth of sin in his own life. The genuine follower is willing to say, I am still struggling with trying to earn something from God. The genuine follower receives what Jesus has done and hears about it and there is surrender. Not self-help. The genuine follower hears what Jesus has done and thinks this is by grace because he's learning about his own heart. Do you see the difference? John is saying, you are children of God now. Now, right now. And the threat that all of us have of beholding that truth and being transformed by it again and again and again is that we want to put God in our, in, in our debt. We want him to owe us and do what we want. Well, that leads us to the not yet. You know, in verse two, John talks about now, today, because of Jesus, you're a child of God. But, he says, beloved, just in case you missed it in verse one, we are children of God now. You see it in verse two? We're children of God now. But, it hasn't yet been revealed what we will be. There's something that's not yet John's saying there's something that hasn't happened yet. There's something that hasn't been brought to completion yet. He says, beloved, we're not yet what we will be, but when he appears, we will see him and we will be like him because we will see him as he is. You notice that? Does that encourage you? Beloved, there's something not yet. The not yet is that one day we will be fully what we are supposed to be. And if you look closely at verse two, he tells us why and even how. One day we will be who we're supposed to be. Try to take this in. John is super deep. We will be the way we're supposed to be because we will be in the presence of Jesus. If we were to be in the presence of Jesus, his very presence would change us and transform us. And you take that in. We, we all know, we all know, we may not think about it a lot, but we all know that being in the presence of people does something to us. We all know that. Uh, there was a friend that I visited on study leave a couple weeks ago, and he's someone I've known for a long time. And uh, he had a horrible upbringing. And he's married now. And I remember having a conversation with him before their first child was born. And this is what he said to me. He said, Dave, I am terrified of being a dad. He had a bad, really, really rough upbringing. I'm terrified about being a dad. And then he said this. But when I looked at my daughter, I didn't realize I was capable of loving that much. Being in the presence of people does something to us, doesn't it? Any Taylor Swift fans in here? You see any videos of people just crying in the presence of being with Taylor Swift? 
I'm not saying you have to like it, but you can't deny it. And we could go on and on about other celebrities. We have this tendency to think, if we can just be in the presence of this person, I won't be, the, I'll be changed. And that's partially true, isn't it? Sad part is, with celebrities and our infatuation with celebrities, we think, well, if I can just get my picture with them, somehow it'll say something about me, that I'm more sophisticated, I'm special, whatever it is. Isn't it kind of weird, you know? Why do we think that? Why would we ever be, why would we ever be tempted to think that way? Because we know being in the presence of people does something to us. And that's exactly what John is telling us except he's showing us the source of that. He's saying when Jesus, is, when Jesus appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. His presence will radically transform us and make us into all that we are supposed to be. His very presence. The Apostle Paul hints at this in a letter he writes to this church in the, in the Corinth area. And he says, as you read the scriptures, if you see Christ in the scriptures, if you read the Bible, in particular he'd be referring to the Old Testament, and if you'd be reading the scriptures and you see Christ in the scriptures, in the stories, in what is communicated in the Old Testament, if you see Jesus, you will transform from one state of glory to another. And John is saying, yeah, that is absolutely true, but one day we'll see him face to face. And on that day, his presence will change us. That's what we have to look forward to. We get to look forward to someone that to be in their presence makes us beautiful, makes us what we should be, makes us all that we're supposed to be just by his presence. Well, that leads us to in between. So what do we do if now I'm a child of God and I'm not yet transformed completely into what I should be? What do I do in between? Look at verse three. Look at what John says. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. Until the day when Jesus returns, until we, we see him as he is, until that day, <clears throat> we have this hope, and hope leads to holiness. Until that day, the fact that you're a child of God, the fact that God has set his love on you to make you a child of God, the fact that your destiny is absolutely secure, that one day you'll see him and you'll be like him. The fact that you're a child, God loves you, and your destiny is secure is your hope because it's all found in Jesus. Jesus is the one that shows you the love of God. Jesus is the one through his life and death and resurrection that brings you into the family of God. And Jesus is the one that you're gonna look for on that day because he's gonna be looking for you. And with that hope, that leads you to pursue holiness because you're a child, because you are loved, and because your destiny is sure, you can pursue holiness. You can want to be pure. You can strive to be like Jesus, all because your hope is in him. Now, 
I know that it may sound strange, but how in the world can we put this on? So here's how, here's how I'm trying to put on this passage. Here's how I am currently trying to wear this passage and wear this text. I know that Jesus died for me. I know that he rose from the dead for me. But I also know that he lived for me. And so where I am in dealing with the things I got to deal with, and you can imagine I was thinking a little bit about this this week leading up to my test, right? And I mentioned this to you a couple weeks ago, so I've been thinking about this for a while. But because Jesus lived for me, I try to find places in which whatever I'm going through is similar to something that Jesus lived through. And for me, right now in the season I'm in, it's been Jesus in the garden. Remember, that was the place when Jesus was in the garden in which he was kind of staggering. That was the place in which he fell to the ground. That was the place in which he was in agony. That was the place in which he was crying out to his father. That was the place in which he was saying, Lord, is there another way? That is the place in which his friends were praying for him, at least supposed to, they fell asleep. Remember that? Either for me, either Jesus was in the garden or he wasn't. Either he really agonized or he didn't. Either he really cried out to his father and said, Lord, is there another way? Or he didn't. Either he staggered and stumbled and fell to the ground because he was overwhelmed, or he didn't. And I believe he did. In the way that I am trying to live into the fact that God loves me, I'm a child of God, and my destiny is secure, and that's my hope, and that leads me to pursue holiness, is to know that when I'm going through what I'm going through, there are times in which I'm staggering and going to the ground. And there are times in which I'm crying out to my father and saying, Lord, does it really have to be this way? And there are times in which I am in agony and overwhelmed. And there are times in which I am absolutely depending. I'm not just asking, I'm depending on you to pray. And I know you probably fall asleep praying for me sometimes. Either Jesus was in the garden or he wasn't. And either my experience can connect to his or it doesn't. And to put this on and to wear this text means that I found Jesus in the garden and I feel like I'm there too. And it's there that I can draw strength from him to be overwhelmed, to be in agony, to cry out to my father, to wrestle with, okay, Lord, nevertheless, your will be done. The place when I can, that I can humble myself. The place where I can draw strength and hope and then keep going to my tests and keep going no matter what the results are or because my Christ has done it for me. And that's what brings us to the table. The four-part story enables us to have a confident hope. Sorry, confident joy. And that joy can even be in the most painful circumstances, right? For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. 
Beloved, this is a table for those who belong to the Lord Jesus, who understand the love of God is full and free, that he's paid the cost, and that what Jesus has done is all that you need. It's not Jesus plus your goodness or your resume. It's not Jesus plus anything in you. It's Jesus and nothing. And if you belong to Jesus and are part of his family, you need the table. And if you don't belong to Jesus and his family, we would ask that you not eat and drink. We ask that you would consider Jesus and all that he promises to be for those who will have him, for those who need, whether you know it or not, that unconditional love of the Father and need a destiny and need to know that you belong. So we ask that if you don't know this Jesus and don't belong to his church, the family, please don't eat and drink. But if you do, beloved, wow, you need this because it reminds you of God's love. It confirms you as his child. He doesn't just say this is a relationship between you and my heart. Come on into the dining room. Come on and eat at my table. And it's the place where we pursue holiness, all because of Christ. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it, said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. After he had given thanks, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. It's shed for the forgiveness of sins. Drink from it, all of you. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim my death until I return. I want to ask those that are assisting and helping this morning if they would come forward. You might notice some logistical tips on the screens, tell you a little bit more about partaking. Um, If they don't go up there, then in particular, just remember that the trays for the drinks are split between wine and grape juice. The dark cups are for the wine. We also have allergen-free bread, so if you have any allergies at all, just make sure you take, not from the loaf, but from the allergen-free bread here. Um, Would you pray with me? Lord in heaven, we thank you that you have loved us with a love that is otherworldly. You have bestowed upon us this love and called us your children. We thank you, Jesus, that things are not yet what they will be one day. Because when we see you and behold you, we will transform into all that we're supposed to be. Because you are on the throne, because you're our savior, and because you will have eliminated every disease and death and sin. And you will transform us by your presence to live in a way that we're supposed to forever. And we thank you that with this hope, that we can pursue holiness. With this hope, we can desire to be more like you and to find ways that our experience connects with yours. And therefore, we can draw strength from you and we can have freedom to express our own frustrations and agonies knowing that you have been there too. So feed us and nourish us with these simple things that our faith may grow, that our desire for you may grow. In your name, amen. Give us just a few moments here to get settled. If you're not partaking this morning, you certainly are welcome to stay seated. You're also welcome to come forward and just pass by the elements. Whatever would be most helpful for you to consider 
all that Jesus is.